welcome to the Film Hole Podcast. I'm Raul. And I'm Raul. And I am Trevor. <laughs> and I am Trevor. But uh, no, I'm a, I'm a scientist. I'm a filmmaker. And what we do here, every week we watch a movie. And then we uh, talk about it. Pop open Zoom and yeah, do some web conferencing. Normally it's discussed over some type of alcohol, but this is like a special like midday film hole episode it's that's like not early the case at all dude i got a negroni right here oh <laughs> i just have a cup of coffee it's like really rainy today too so it feels like appropriate to kind of do like a different hour oh that's nice recording yeah it was like crazy storming here like a little while ago it was like flooding i love storms yeah uh but this week we watched uh, Boogie Nights. Uh huh. Paul which, Thomas Anderson, which is a director that we've um we've, we've premiered before on the show. Is this the first time that we've revisited a director? This might be, yeah, because yeah. you're talking about the master, right? Yeah, which was way early film hole. That's episode two, man. In our wow. younger years. Wow. I can't believe this. Like this is episode so. Without even counting, like, when we switch to our, like, bi-weekly schedule, uh, which is we don't do an episode for those uh, for those movies, and we're already at episode 21, wow. which means at least we've been doing this for 21 weeks, but definitely more. It's crazy. I have noticed that a couple of academic quarters have passed me by. Yeah. Unintentionally. Yeah, who Ooh. knew we could watch so many movies with almost no issue? But yeah, so like this is our second Paul Thomas Anderson film. Do you want to talk a little bit about like the movies we've seen from this director? Sure. What do you um, think about them? If you are going off film episodes alone, I think we've just watched The Master, uh, which is his movie about indirectly about Scientology, starring Joaquin Phoenix and Philip Seymour Hoffman, mm-hmm. which is great. Um I think I nerd out about that movie more than than this one. When was that movie made? Early two thousand. The Master, two thousand eight. Okay. This one was like a decade earlier. Okay, so probably a little bit more refined version of Paul Thomas Anderson by that point. Yeah. Which movie uh, did you like more? The Master, for sure. Uh huh. Yeah. I'd probably I agree I, with that. I don't think this movie is like bad by any stretch of the imagination. It's just that one's better out of the yeah. two. Uh, but yeah, I think that just talking about the director a little bit off the top is I know who Paul Thomas Anderson is and like being a film guy, like I've heard his name, but he's just like one of those directors, kind of like my John Carpenter for you. Like just by consequence, I've watched some of his movies, but like I was never switched on to like, oh, this is a PTA movie, you know? Mm -hmm. I think probably his most notorious thing he's done is There Will Be Blood. Right. It's like something that really penetrated the culture. But then um, if you dig through the surface just a little bit, you'll find like a discography or a filmography that's has a lot of acclaim. You know, he, he's somebody that I think is very critically liked. Oh, yeah. I'd say so. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. They're in there. Yes. Yes. The Area 51 guy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh 
Yeah, which is weird. I, I guess I just never, uh, I never caught the bug. I've seen There Will Be Blood, and I loved it. Um, Can't get I enough think, of that movie. But uh, it was, like, tough because, I don't know, there was just n- nothing ever made me be like, oh, I'm going to f- find out more about this guy. I think there was a period in my life when I would just watch a movie and, like, who directed it was completely irrelevant. Yeah. yeah. You know? It was just like, it's a movie. Who made it has nothing to do with the movie itself. And so why would I look that up and seek more things mm-hmm. uh, out about that guy or girl? At some point, um, but most likely a guy, because most directors are guys. <laughs> yeah. But at at some point in my past, I like found out that that was a useful avenue to like search out new movies and you get a little sense of a it's a very like human thing to try to connect a piece of work to the human so this just like makes sense to go see other things it's weird because i feel like what i did where i just you know didn't really care about the director is like a normal thing to do in the space of movies but like when you're talking about any other art form i feel like it's not as common to operate not as common I right. think music works a lot that way. There are a lot of people that like wouldn't even listen to, you know, let alone listen to the same artist a lot. Like they won't even listen to an album. They'll just like have songs essentially. Right. And so that is like the most chopped up way to like consume that. Right. That but I would say, I would say that people like when they consume music, they at least are aware of like who the artist is, you know? Yeah, that's true. Whereas like people will watch movies and like could never tell you who directed it they'll just know the movie it's weird it's like the the stars the actors are more closely associated with like the human element of movies than uh the people who actually made it are that's true i guess so in that case people like do want to like engage with movies in this kind of human level so often they'll just attach to the stars Mm -hmm. to the actors that are in it which i try to do that less but it's just kind of how it goes, I guess. That's the pe- mm. that's the faces that you recognize from a movie. Right, so it, right. it makes sense. So what do you think of uh, Boogie Nights? Had you seen this movie before? Mm-mm. This is the... Uh, I'm, almo- I'm almost up to having watched all of his movies except the first one now. Which I feel which like is I should... what? Hard 8. Okay. Super 8. One of those two. It's. But, it, I would imagine Heart Eight because Super Eight is like a J.J. Abrams movie. Got it. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. With like the teenagers with superpowers. I uh, no. I don't think they have superpowers. It's like no. they discover an alien. Okay. In their hometown. But the aliens have superpowers. I don't know. They have alien but powers. In any case, so I've almost gone through his whole thing now, and I feel like I should just watch his uh, debut movie just to knock it all out of the park. Top it off. Yeah, but I enjoyed yeah. this movie a lot. He's a director that I have a hard time kind of pinning down. Um, he's not like Quentin Tarantino, where he has like a, a single thing that he does. It's always violence and right, cool, edgy dialogue. I feel like Paul Thomas Anderson does a lot of different things, but that's. I feel like that's one of the reasons that I actually didn't catch on to him being like the same director across some of these movies that I've seen. Yeah. Because they feel distinct in their own ways. Like, none of them have, like, a signature creative element that could tie it back to one person for me. Mm. At least, if 
if they do, which they probably do, it's so subtle that I wouldn't be able to pick up on it just by watching them all individually. Yeah. I'm in the same place, too. I mean, I'm biased because I know the movies that he's made, and when I watch them, I know that, but I think there's probably some stylistic stuff that runs through and just maybe more uh, technical stuff that's consistent throughout his movies. Yeah. Pacing, cinematography, stuff like that, but... yeah. Uh, all in all, he he seems like he has a very varied filmography. He's trying something new. Yeah. And every time, so even if you take two movies like There Will Be Blood and Boogie Nights, they're both period pieces, but mm-hmm. they seem very different from one another. Right. I I think that's a mark of a really good uh, artist, or just I don't know, good at art, art tour at- even. <laughs> good at figuring stuff out i guess because i mean he just seems very solid in his role of directing but he can direct any kind of movie mm-hmm. you know for sure i felt i got that too all right okay how do you want to how do you want to start off about talking about boogie nights do you want to sum up that plot really quick let's let's try to talk about the plot a little bit okay um and more than anything else it's just a good way to kind of like check base with you to make sure that we saw the same movie right i might have been on the wrong twitch stream i don't know <laughs> so boogie nights um i think is a deceiving title which we alluded to in our post zoom discussion which if you don't know anything about it if you don't know any of the context around the movie or if you don't know who paul thomas anderson is you might think that this is like a movie about dancing or something uh-huh uh, which is honestly one of the reasons I was never like attracted to watch it. Cause I think I said, I thought it was like a, uh, footloose kind of situation, like maybe a musical, like, yeah, a, dis- yeah. like a disco musical movie. We had a couple of, of our audience that thought the same thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's not about that. It's about uh porn in the seventies. It's like a little, like several different subplots ultimately centering on this guy named Dirk Diggler who's this fictional porn star in the 70s and his like rise to fame it kind of like the genesis of porn right right and then that basically it captures the entire first half of the movie it's just a, a period piece that follows a few different characters um most notably this Dirk Diggler guy who's played by Marky Mark mm-hmm. um, and it's a long movie almost three hours yeah. yeah but for the first half of it you're just treated to this you know this montage of life in Southern California during the 70s in this very specific subculture of of the porn industry at that time um, mm-hmm. the movie does go to darker places towards the end of it Mm-hmm. But as far as the plot synopsis goes, I don't think that's we don't have to get into it right now too much. But yeah, plot wise, there's not a lot going on here. It's more of a kind of day in the life kind of thing. Yeah, I uh, I think this like the premise alone is very interesting. Just like focusing you, in on the porn industry. Yeah, if you just walk into a movie and you're like, I want to make a movie about porn, like the behind the scenes of like porn in the 70s and do it in a very like uh, light handed way. Uh huh. You know, 
I couldn't help imagining like what that looked like a young filmmaker. I don't know how old he is. Let's just say that he was a 19. That's probably not, that's probably not right at all, but he's just like in the, with executives from Hollywood and they're all like in their seventies, people from the golden age of Hollywood. Mm -hmm. And they're like, I want to make a movie about uh, pornography because I think about it a lot. And I, and I, and I, and I watch it a lot and I want to make a movie. And they're like, uh, they love this kid because he just made a really good movie and he looks really promising. But they are just like mm-hmm. trying to make sure that he's not talking about making a porno movie. <laughs> yeah. And then once they were able to establish that, they were a little bit more on board. But mm-hmm. something worth mentioning is you would think that a movie, because there are other movies about porn, I can't think of like a lot other than like Zach and Miri make a porno. Mm. But a movie like that, that's not a porno that's about a porno and is rated r um i feel like this movie is surprisingly like not as raunchy as you would think it would be yeah i read that they were going for like uh, i guess paul thomas wanted a uh what is like that that high rating like beyond r x is that what you're saying maybe that's doesn't sound like it though something 17 oh nc 17 what is that I mean, it's just like the next like highest rating after R. That's is X. X X is like porn. That's like even higher. Yeah. Huh. Okay. X is like the top. But I I did hear that he was going for that, but that they um, eventually went to like going for an R rating, and so they like re-edited stuff or reshot stuff. Oh, interesting. Huh. Yeah. But it's like I I kind of enjoy it for that reason because it. Like when you get into a movie about like porn, you're like, "Oh man, what's, what am I gonna have to endure visually?" Like, yeah. To get, to even get even compared movie? to sexual content from other stuff, R-rated and down, it's not super it's pretty explicit. Tame. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I think is works in the movie's favor. You could make the argument, I think, that like, oh, it makes it less authentic. But I feel like it's very tasteful, and like, kind of presents like uh porn as a subject matter as like a like a real thing that you can talk about versus just like something borderlining on an exploitative film Mm -hmm. you know right what i really like is that they like they go like if you're gonna have to dig into this subculture and this industry um you're gonna have to get into some like racy stuff but i like how they have the camera on the actors, you know, up until the moment of that they start like the porn shoot the whole time. And there's something like super real about like actors pretending to be porn actors in the moments before their in movie camera turns on. Uh huh. That I just find kind of fascinating, like a little behind the scenes kind of. I think uh, Justin said something in the chat about like it must be really hard or a special type of acting to do bad acting really well in particular porn acting which i think is is something that's like very funny from this movie just the way they handle that right it's this cool like inverse uh relationship they have with acting where when the porn camera isn't rolling they're like phenomenal actors yeah yeah but when it's when it is rolling they like are still phenomenal actors, but like to a different degree. 
it just like it it flips itself mm-hmm. like they are cap the the people themselves playing these actors are capable of doing like the most amazing porn movie you've ever seen but they have to like dumb it down for the sake of their characters right right do you want to sidestep for a bit and just talk about the cast of the movie sure yeah which i can't believe like how star-studded it is for a director's I, only I was, second movie i was curious about this because i wasn't sure the most notable thing for me in that department was that philip seymour hoffman is kind of a b character in this at best and i feel like he's maybe like one of the best actors like in the whole uh in the whole array of people and maybe that's just because he wasn't big at that time like maybe was he philip seymour hoffman by this point I don't know. Was he in, um, did he work with Paul Thomas Anderson before? Because I know like that their thing is like they have a close relationship or, I just or had know, one. Yeah, I just know him from like the later movies that they work together with. Yeah. I don't know. You would know better than me. I can't remember other than The Master. Is he in Magnolia? Yeah, yeah, he is. But I don't know what came before Boogie Nights. Anyways, but you're but yeah, right. No, he was he was great, but his role was like you could take it out completely. It's already a movie without much plot at all, so it's not saying much. But you could have taken him out of the movie without really changing anything else about the movie. Yeah, it was very uh, much like a B story. Yeah, uh, I really love his subplot though. I wrote down several of the subplots, um, more some more fleshed out than others. Uh, I will. S- I'm going to say this um, really quick and then we'll talk about casting is this movie is uh, kind of deceivingly about like a ton of different characters. Like I feel like if you if you just watch the movie like kind of passively on your first go around you're like this is a movie about Dirk Diggler and Burt Reynolds. Mm -hmm. But like if upon closer examination there's all these other auxiliary stories going on that have nothing to do with either of those characters yeah that's true it, and so like and, and it's weird because you don't really even notice it in in my opinion like it just they're kind of right under the radar of like the main thread of the movie so you could almost right. watch it and not not pick up on those did you take note of it so there's stuff like obviously philip seymour hoffman's character and then there's that other porn actor that wants to be like a stereo sound system salesman yeah don Cheadle's character and then there's also um there's also this the other female african-american porn actress who i think her character's name is becky barnett she was like the most fly under the radar person i saw where it's just like there were several scenes while kind of revisiting the film that i saw with her where it's just Uh her talking to someone else that's like not a main player in the movie I don't remember what you're talking about. That's my point. Is that's like how I, under the radar it is. I watched this and I'm like, I don't even know who these people are or like why they're even talking to each other. So the all that's to say is this movie like does this weird like sleight of hand where you're just like not even noticing like some of the like narrative developments it's making. Mm-hmm. Because I think you see some of those scenes that we just referenced and you're like, okay, this must play into something else I'm going to see later. 
I'll just like put that in my my brain RAM for now, right? Until, right. until it clicks later, and, and then it never does, so it like goes out of your RAM. You never like object to seeing a character like being introduced or a scene when you're watching a movie because your expectation is just that this is going somewhere. Mm-hmm. So you're introduced to all these scenes and you just watch them and it's fine, but then it never goes anywhere and you kind of forget that you had seen him in the first place. Yeah. But it is a movie that kind of leans into that. It's sort of the, he does this more with his next movie, Magnolia, where he just completely eschews any narrative structure and just throws vignettes at you. Yeah. I remember you, you were saying that, but anyways, we were talking about casting. I kind of like derailed that for a moment. Great casting. I mean, a lot of people that we would know till this day. So I don't know if it, how much of this is a matter of, at the time that these weren't well-known actors, but just working actors, and he just got enough of them on board and was lucky enough that they all had uh, notable careers afterwards. But yeah, I mean, we got Marky Mark, who at the time, I guess, was not a movie star at all. Yeah, I I would imagine this is, you know, it's Mark Wahlberg, and I imagine this has got to be pretty close to him actually being Marky Mark. This was like... right. This is pre-Mark Wahlberg, maybe like post or during Marky Mark. Right, right. Do you remember that? This is off topic, but wasn't there like a news story about how like Marky Mark was like involved? It's not even a news story. It's just known fact that he was like involved in some kind of violent crime when he was younger. Or I am like I thinking the- of somebody else? I, I'm sorry. I'm thinking of somebody else. I'm thinking of the Taken guy. That came out recently. But Marky Mark had done some violent stuff in his past. Yeah, I don't know. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, what you're saying, like, rings a bell, but I couldn't I couldn't tell you what it, nah. what it is or was. He had a, a really successful uh, rap career. Well, he also... let's, let's temper that down a little bit. Dude, everybody knows Marky Mark. <laughs> <laughs> the most respected rapper of his day. It'd be a disservice to say it wasn't successful. Okay. the the dude The dude made uh made some money. I love um, I think I've sent you a video of his before, but JonTron, that YouTuber, that just kind of does like comedy content now. Mm-hmm. It was like the Dan Aykroyd, the Crystal Skull video. He did one about Marky Mark's workout video, which is a real thing. Uh huh. It's great. Highly recommend. This like just, recent Marky Mark or like later Marky Mark? It's like OG Marky Mark workout video from like the nineties. Oh, like, like John Tron gets a copy and watches it and just comments on it, does little sketches. It's great. Interesting. Mm-hmm. I listen to a lot of Cashing In with TJ Miller, which is another podcast I really like. Mm-hmm. And at at for a period of time, one of the people on that podcast, TJ Miller, worked with Marky Mark. I think on the Transformers movies. Okay. And so he had some just like anecdotal, anecdotal. He had some stories. Anecdotal. Anecdotal. That's not even the right word. Yeah. (laughs) But he had some like stories about him and just like the way he lives his life, which is I found so fascinating. Like what? You know, he's kind of known as like this actor as that like does a lot of shitty movies, right? Uh huh. And kind of the understanding is that like the actors that do that kind of thing are just in it for the money. Right. And they're just like career actors and they'll put their name on anything that like makes a paycheck come. 
Uh-huh. And he just kind of confirmed that, but in particular, just how prolific he is. I mean, he'll appear in like two or three movies a year. And, uh-huh. and TJ kind of like explained like a little bit of how that schedule works about how he'll like to make it work. You need to have private jets that can so you can have a, a family life. Right. You need to have private jets that can take you to and from set so you can spend the weekend with your family and then come back again. Huh. And, and apparently he also has this thing known as like a Hollywood posse. Okay. Which which just means that you bring friends or people that you hang out with yeah. to your to your work. Yeah. Because if you're gonna be spending, you know, a half of your life, you know, churning out five crappy action movies a year. Yeah. You you might as well have like a social life while you're doing it, so he just does that. Yeah. You just bring your social life with you. Portable social life. Incredible. Dude, that sounds great. <laughs> like Sign me up. But the posse has to be made up of people that don't have anything going on otherwise. I would also sign up for this posse. You would drop what you're doing? If I was, like, really good friends with, like, Mark Wahlberg and, like, every weekend was, like, just partying and just, like, flying around on on jets and going to movie sets, like, yeah, I would do that. That just sounds like such an awkward... I don't think I would have. To, I don't think I would have to like uproot my life. You know, I am like one dude though. I don't have any kids or anything. Yeah. But I think it would be pretty easy to like balance that. Where like Mark Wahlberg calls me up like on Thursday and he's like, "Hey, we're going to uh, Taiwan to shoot this movie for a few days. You want to come?" I'm like, "Yeah, no problem." Okay, that sounds yeah. like like fun and light. But like worst case scenario is that you have this like group of friends. Who you basically just keep on salary and you're like yeah. i'm i'm marky mark i got millions of dollars you guys are my closest friends and i want you around but i can't do that without basically just paying you to be with me <laughs> so that's what i'm gonna do i'm gonna give you you know two figures a year you'll be my professional friends <laughs> <laughs> professional friends that's a title for something that's a title for a real world job and it's Marky Mark mm-hmm. is the main the main uh buyer of that. We could do a uh like a biopic about like one of those people and it's called Professional Friend. And it's just about like the dark underbelly of like Mark Wahlberg is like a side character. Uh-huh. And like the main character is like uh Joe whatever that is on the plane like every weekend with him and how it's like and how it's like destroying his life just like having (laughs) to be there for mark Wahlberg all the time i love it casting uh back to casting who else we got here we've got you know who else was in the burt Burt reynolds Reynolds. yeah which we can table that discussion because i read more about how he doesn't like paul thomas anderson Really? Okay. They showed this a little bit in the pre-show, right? They showed like an interview. I wasn't sure how much of that was like legit, because it it was him on Conan, uh, Burt Reynolds, and he was saying like I had, you know, reservations about being in this movie, but it all seemed like in service of a joke, so I wasn't sure. I don't think so. What I read is that you know he really didn't like Paul Thomas Anderson, and that at one point 
there was a report from a guy that Burt Reynolds took Paul Thomas Anderson like backstage or like, you know, during shooting, took him step aside and yelled at him, quote, like a parent, you know, just like, who do you think you are fucking telling me what to do? And apparently there were some uh, some shots fired. OK. Like punching going on between PTA and Burt Reynolds. Yeah. Which is the funniest thing to me. It's so badass of uh, a badass of a story for PTA, in my opinion. Yeah. It's like, yeah, one time I directed Burt Reynolds so hard that he punched me. (laughs) (laughs) So he was in the movie. But yeah, that's Mm -hmm. just so funny to me. What an old school kind of like personality that Burt Reynolds must be. You know, just I don't know much about him. He died. Uh, oh. Like last, like two years ago. He did? I missed that. Yeah. But I only R. knew R. him from stuff that he's done in in like um, later life probably. So I know him from, you know, what do I know him from? I know him from Smoking the Bandit. Uh, was he in uh, Dukes of Hazard? Is he one of the, the Duke like, boys? The original? Yeah. I don't know. Um, I may not know Burt Reynolds that well. He's like old Western stuff too. Mm-hmm. Um, Deliverance, yeah. He's he like has always struck me as like kind of a classic, uh, '60s and '70s actor, which mm-hmm. I think his just uh, prevalence in that time is probably why uh, he was cast in this movie at all. Huh. So I, I don't like know him nod. very well. It's definitely a nod, but just as far as like th- what he brings to the movie, like his acting style, he just exudes manliness. Manliness. Yeah. Yeah. Right. For sure. He big mustache. In my memory, he's always wearing the cowboy hat, whether he or not he wore it in this movie. I'm not sure. <laughs> uh huh. But yeah, like the kind of guy that would take somebody off stage and yell at them and then punch them in the face. Totally. Who else we got? We got Don Cheadle. We've got Julianne Moore. Um, Who is Roller Girl? I know her from somewhere. Uh, I could. I looked this up earlier. I couldn't tell you much about her, honestly. Let's see. Mm. Um, oh, John C. Riley. Yeah, John C. Riley. Forget about Roller Girl. She's out of here. Yeah. Heather Graham is Roller Girl, but mm. I couldn't couldn't say much about her. She's in Austin Powers. Ah, yeah. Um John C. Riley's great in this movie. I feel like I personally am experiencing like a John C. Riley assance. Uh because I think growing up, I only really associated him with like Will Ferrell mm-hmm. as like the the second character in all Will Ferrell movies. But that's he's, like, when I became aware of him. Step Brothers, Step Brothers, Talladega Nights. Uh, mm. Maybe those are the only two where he's like that. But yeah, those movies are firmly like John C. Riley as like the sidekick of Will Ferrell, right? In my right. memory. But yeah, he's great in this movie too. Uh, he is he's like a likable. 
he's a funny man, but he's also like, yeah, a likable, relatable guy. It's not like Will Ferrell level humor, just mm-hmm. a, a solid comedic relief presence. Channeling kind of the same energy that he did in Step Brothers, I couldn't help thinking when I saw it. Just sort of this, like the whole, the whole premise of Step Brothers is, is that these are adult people, but they're uh-huh. essentially just children in their mental state because they've been coddled or whatever. Yeah, it's weird. There's this scene um, in the movie that like is a perfect summation of like what you're talking about. Um, they even like do something that's like very iconic in Step Brothers. It's like when Dirk Diggler first shows up to uh like the porn house or whatever it is it's like where they're having the pool party mm-hmm. and he meets john c Riley for the first time and he starts asking him like how much he can bench i saw that scene sw- recently again yeah just He's what like, a much, great moment how much can you bench he was uh, like can i hey can I, can I ask you something <laughs> yeah sure how much do you how much do you lift he like first he asked him that yeah which is isn't, isn't like isn't do you lift like a meme now yeah, but he said, do you work out? Do you work out? Yeah, so that's a more generic way of saying that. So but he, they, they, literally, they literally do the thing where they were talking about like, oh, how much do you like squat? And they're like, we'll say, it at the, <laughs> we'll, we'll say it at the same time. Like three, two, one. You didn't say anything. Well, neither did you. So it's just like that scene is like very similar to the whole like, say your favorite dinosaur in three, two, one or it is exactly like that it's exactly like that yeah 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 good catch instant best friends just like stepbrothers when they like met each other and became friends instantly Mm -hmm. and it's funny because like in that movie like both dudes are kind of like juvenilely into like karate and action and like that's right dirk Dirk diggler's whole thing is like he's into karate and he's like right right kicks and nunchucks all the time that's so, what a funny cultural thing. I used to be into karate when I was a little kid. Everybody was into karate, man. And Ninja I'm realizing now that that wasn't just like a given. Karate wasn't just cool, you know, for all of history. Mm-hmm. There was a period of time where that was like a thing. I don't think it's a thing anymore. You mean you still got like karate schools and stuff that you can go to and people are still I- into martial arts, but definitely like in the like 80s and 90s like with the rise of certain like kinds of action movies and martial mm-hmm. arts and like kung fu movies i think uh people in like western countries were really like switched on to the idea of like martial arts as this cool huh. thing yeah i mean i blame hollywood like most things you know i'm a big big hollywood critic mm-hmm. no Hollywood's- i never got past weiss belt Never got past white belt. I like almost made it to blue belt, man. Or excuse me, black belt. I was a blue belt. My only memory of karate was doing this a lot. Just like. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny when you do karate. It's, it's, hard, like... it's hard to describe what I, what motion that is. But for the listener, what, what am I doing? You're like, it's like you're uh, dusting off your arms. It's like if like, you. This is how you'd like block an attack as I was taught. You just kind of like yeah, run your arm across your other arm. Imagine you have like a lot of dust like on the tops of your arms and you like would want to like get it off with your other hand. 
but like just don't use an open hand just use a fist to dust your arm off yeah that's how you block an attack in karate (laughs) i remember being in karate and realizing when you're a kid this idea of like who he's a black belt so he could like kick my ass it's this very like because this person has a certain kind of title they're just like capable of in Dwight Schrute's words, like physically dominating someone else. Uh-huh. But it's like anybody can do it. It's just like taking a test, really. <laughs> you know, it's just like you can memorize like all of the shit. You like, say you... that, but I never got past white belt, so <laughs> I'm I'm crying inside right now. Well, you just didn't go to the right school, man. That's how yeah, Dwight Schrute in, in in office in the office like does it eventually. He just like finds the teacher that'll give him the black belt. That's funny. Right. It's interesting. What's that other movie that we wanted to watch? The Jesse Eisenberg karate one? Oh, Art of Self-Defense. I still want to watch Yeah. The whole premise of that movie is like karate is already like culturally is already kind of like a like a lame thing to do. Mm -hmm. It's already kind of seeped in that. But whereas in, you know, in the 80s and 70s, it was probably like a pretty cool thing. Yeah perfect combination of like aggressiveness and you know uh violence and and just something that people could really dig into right Mm -hmm. definitely like a big fad and new thing back then Mm -hmm. i definitely really related it back uh, related with the main character of mark Wahlberg as just how juvenile he was Mm -hmm. just like how into like karate and like eastern culture he was just like struck me as like a very relatable thing yeah how dumb it was an adolescent it was right there's the scene where he's like showing everybody his new house after he's become very really successful and it's just like i love that scene it's like if a 17 year old like decorated a house or like designed a house there's like a picture of him that a friend painted where he's like doing this and he's like it's like a cartoon. He's just like shredded and it's just a painting on the wall that he has. And then he shows Julianne Moore his bedroom and he's like, yeah, it's like I got all my karate stuff and his like cover on his bed is like got Chinese dragons and stuff on it. And he's got like these statues on his dresser. And then he's got that like crazy. Uh, I don't know what kind of car it is, but a very like red like the kind of car that I think everybody wants when they're that age. Yeah, yeah. It's just, just funny to see it just just the preferences of uh, an adolescent, like American teenager of that time, just being able to carry it out to their logical conclusion, you know, with the yeah. aid of all the money that he got. It's just so funny. Right. And that concludes casting. Yeah, I don't really know how much it's worth talking about anyone else. Kind of said it, said what I needed to say. So I thought for a good idea might be that um, at the end, we just say a bunch of like transition phrases Okay. for the editor. All right, let's talk about something else. Next, let's talk about... Yeah, and I hear, I hear that, but what do you think about the fact that... Um, so in that one scene... I think all that's great. Uh, 
How about we uh, pivot to uh, this other thing? That <laughs> that's uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, I felt I got that too. Uh, I've got some time codes here that I think are pretty interesting to talk about. Uh, we kind of alluded to this somewhat already, but how the movie is kind of this mashup of a lot of different subplots, and I think some of them are more interesting than others. Uh, I think maybe my favorite one, uh, and we're talking about subplots and not like the main like Dirk Diggler story, mm-hmm. is the uh, Little Bill like cuckolding sub subplot. You know what I'm talking about? No, 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 no. Little Bill. Little Bill is the um, can't remember that actor's name. The mustache guy, right? Yeah. He always um, plays weak people. Right. Uh William H. Macy. He's right. um the guy from Fargo. Got it. But, got it. Yeah, the whole joke with him is he's married to this woman, assumingly a porn star. Cause he's part of just like the porn uh like community of people and they all seem to just know each other and like be married to other porn stars. Yeah, yeah, she is. I read and, that. Little Bill is on the production side of things, and the first scene where you like see the subplot take place is at nine minutes and fifty seconds, where she or he is coming home, and it's like the classic like the husband walks in on the wife cheating on him kind of scene, mm-hmm. but it has like this very notable lack of tension, where it's right. It's, it's normally that is like a, a trope. Right. There's it's normally husband this, like, walking in on wife. This like murderous thing where it's like, what the fuck are you doing? And like it it escalates really quickly, but it's the most casual way that that's ever happened. Where he walks in, and he's like, what are you doing? And he's, they're still like fucking, like while, yeah. <laughs> like while he's talking to him. Uh, and they're like, what does it look like? And they're like, get out of here! You're like you're distracting us or something. And they reinforce that that exact same thing of where like oh I thought like infidelity 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 thank you Trevor is like something that's super serious and like would take up a lot of the narrative space but instead it's just cast aside later on when she is again having sex with somebody like on a part in a parking lot mm-hmm. with just a circle of men surrounding her and once again he runs into the scene is like. Oh, well, I'm embarrassed, but there's nothing I can do. Everybody's into it. Right. This is just the way it is. And um, he and, I, and the and the the camera guy tries to talk to him, and obviously he's like super upset about this, but the camera guy like doesn't care. Right. It's it's interesting because everybody uh, doesn't give a shit about this thing, and even he, to a certain degree, I think he's obviously upset by it, but he seems to just kind of accept that this is the way that it is right right like the, i mean I, I that's the entire industry is just sex at a commo- as a commodity how can you like be super upset about what is happening in front of you and I it's think, weird it's just uh yeah i think it's cool too because that helps disarm you for like how that subplot ultimately concludes which it, yeah like super dark and we haven't even talked about this at all but the movie um it's not all just 
happy-go-lucky, you know, about the porn industry and how fun that is, it goes into a really dark place. And it really is that subplot that I think launches that. Because, like, the first really dark thing that happens is where that subplot goes. Mm-hmm. Which, do you just want to, you want to say it? Yeah, we'll say it. It's a dark one. Uh, he he walks on in on her or sees her kind of uh, having sex with another dude at least twice, maybe more. Yeah. And yeah. the la- the last scene is he just very calmly uh, goes and gets a gun from another room. During, yeah, during a party. Or during from a party, party. Comes back in and shoots both of them, like, point blank. Uh, yeah. You don't see it. It kind of happens off screen, but you get it. But it's like it's a hard turn from like every other interaction that that character's had in those in those scenes where he's walking. And there's been no violence up to this point. Right. They don't make him seem like he's a violent guy. They don't make it seem like this was like a premeditated thing or even that it was bothering him that much. Like it. I just mean like like in general, like in the movie, there had been no violence up until this point. And that happens and you're like, oh, like there's a dark side to what's happening here right yeah and so he does that and then he steps out into the party and then shoots himself so it's like a murder suicide situation yeah and then it's really underplayed for the rest of the movie like i don't think they talk about it again right which i think is what plays into the whole this is a montage of unrelated stories because that whole plot of like little bill and his wife plays out and does not affect anything about the rest of the movie. Right, right. Like the that could be a short film on its own. It's just all of oh. those little interactions. Like that that is the most extreme thing that happens up up to that point. And you think that maybe um, you know, they could spend some time bouncing back from that or like dealing with the repercussions of that. Mm-hmm. But it, they really don't. I mean they really just keep going along, which to me just says like, you know, these kinds of things happen in this industry, like violence, and it's just kind of it's par for the course. Yeah. Par for the course, yeah. Mm-hmm. I get that. Some of our pre-show material, I think, kind of started to dig into that a little. How, like, porn is still, you know, this huge thing. It's up and running, always is. Uh, but there's certainly like stuff like demons that come along with the industry that are just kind of certainly accepted as part of part of how it goes yeah and so maybe this is a good you know just transition to talking about the second half of this movie which we've been holding off on a little bit and just saying that like the second half of the movie is really dark and kind of looking more at the underbelly of the beast Mm -hmm. as it said And, and porn is like an interesting thing it's like something that can depending on your framing can cut like completely flip on whether it's like a good thing or a bad thing. And this movie initially, you know, takes a very high energy approach to the subject matter and makes it look fun mm-hmm. and approachable. Mm-hmm. But then it, 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 the, the entire second half of the movie uh, kind of takes a tone that's more critical and sort of more on the downsides of it. Yeah. With like Dirk Diggler, he starts to appear to suffer. Uh, like he's obviously got a big ego, and his like relationships have suffered. But then, like, 
his whole career is like built around his ability to perform sexually and that seems to have like started to become a problem for him he's like struggling mm-hmm. with some like erectile dysfunction or something uh what are the other characters problems so like julian um, has a drug problem and like can't see her son right right um burt reynolds is like struggling with the transition from film to video uh roller girl also- has like some sort of um encounter with an old classmate that tries to like right. take advantage of her sexually right right that scene um uh ah shit what's his name don cheadle don cheadle's character you know he's a character who's trying to start a legitimate life after his porn career oh, yeah. and, is, and is finding a hard time sort of he can't get financed by banks because of his history they're like discriminating against him mm-hmm. and so the whole second half of this movie just like delves into this he has one of the most wild scenes in the movie the like the gas station or restaurant scene. Yeah. <laughs> that's crazy unbelievable it, it's like uh set the stage a little bit he Walks into what I think is a diner or a gas station. I'm really not sure. And while he's having a a transaction with the clerk, like a dude comes in ready to rob the place. And Don Cheadle is just an innocent bystander. And he's doing his thing. And then there's like a red-blooded American sitting in the a booth away from the cash register that they really do a great job of immediately establishing that this guy is going to try something. It's this like Elmer Fudd looking kind of guy with what now would just, if this movie was made today, it would just be a MAGA hat. What the guy is wearing. Yeah. It's like, I think it's literally like a red baseball cap, but uh, he's got like a hunting vest on. He's reading a book that's like guns and hunting or something like that. Was he? Yeah, he's reading like a magazine like about guns or something. And and wearing enough clothing like jackets and like layers to wear you can't even make out like the shape of this person. Right. So it's, this starts transpiring and it becomes immediately clear that this guy has like a gun hidden within the igloo of clothing. Yeah. That he's made for himself. It's just like comical like how in one shot they're like this guy is going to like make a move here. <laughs> Yeah, by just yeah. showing you how what he look what he looks like, but uh, he tries to be a hero. Shoots the, um, shoots the mugger, and like the mugger like loses control of his gun and accidentally shoots the guy who shot him. And then the hunter fires another sh- shot off after he's shot, and which accidentally kills the clerk. And so it's this triple murder thing that just happened in front of Don Cheadle. And now he's the only person left alive in this diner. And there's a bag of money on the floor, which is what the mugger had, like, right before he was going to leave. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he has to make this decision of, like, do I take this money and then start my stereo business? It's hard to interpret that scene other than just being a case of like senseless violence. Yeah, I mean, it's of just, just of just fate just occurring in front of them. Yeah. It's tough because it's 
he's been like beaten down by uh the right way to do things over and over again and then he's like presented with this sort of uh really tempting situation where it's like consequence free i can take all this money but is it mm-hmm. the right thing to do but he he has no he choice really he's such an interesting character i mean like he's been played the whole time as this very almost like childlike completely innocent type person mm-hmm. um i think massive like, to the point go ahead uh like like i i the parts of his character where he's like really self-conscious about like what he wears and is like really sensitive to what people think about his fashion choices, which uh-huh. are crazy. He's like wears like cowboy suits and like pharaoh robes and stuff. He's like <laughs> yeah. really, really out there, but he's really sensitive about it. So he comes off as a really sensitive guy. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. And just to have him in this like moral dilemma by the end. So cool. Yeah. He is a really interesting character. He like tries very hard and just like can't get a leg up. Mm-hmm. Just is kind of missing the mark all the time. I was surprised that he wasn't a bigger part of the movie, but his story really is just a B story that cuts perpendicular to the rest of the plot. Like they, he meets the main character, Marky Mark, and the rest of them. He's in that crew, but it departs from there and he's yeah. just doing his own thing. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Oh, at uh, 37 minutes, uh, there's this part where, you already mentioned it, where uh, little Bill is talking to the cameraman, uh, who is, I guess, a famous magician, and like kind of broke out of that to play in some Paul Thomas Anderson movies. Huh. But um, the cameraman and little Bill are like, chatting about you know his wife and then he i imagine little bill is like a producer or something or some kind of manager and he's asking him for like new camera equipment which as a camera guy i really loved because what he's talking about is like yeah i think we can we need some new lenses um you know i think that like in order to capture the light in this particular scene that it would be really bad better if we had like a 50 millimeter uh, one eight or something. I'm not sure exactly all the tech speak that he uses, but I understood all of it. And I really understood like what it's like talking to your supervisor about that stuff. Uh huh. Because you're just brass tacks. You just like want better gear because it looks cooler. And like, you just want more toys as a cinematographer, but you present it in this way. That's like, I really think if we want to capture the story correctly, we need like better lenses. We need some more lights right here. But in this case, it seemed completely like the way you're framing it can kind of seem like you're trying to upsell your manager to give you some toys. But the way it's framed in this movie, um, it really seems like he's like a, a professional person that like knows what is needed in the moment because like porn at that time is not something that was technically like super sophisticated. Right. Like to me, like the the best case of that in the movie is um in one of the montage scenes where where Dirk Diggler, right before he's about to start a scene, he's like, "Oh hey, um, do you want me to do a Spanish accent?" 
Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, wouldn't you have talked about that beforehand? Why is this not decided until now that you're getting ready yeah. to go? I really love. So it's an industry that doesn't take a lot of uh, care of doing that technical stuff right. Mm-hmm. But this this character guy, what's his name again? The the cameraman. I don't know. The guy asking for the stuff. It yeah. just seems to me he comes off as just a complete professional who really wants what's like best for the movie. Yeah. Well, I think you can have it both ways. Honestly, I think you can just be wanting some toys, but also have like a perfectly legitimate professional reason. It's always mm-hmm. like this game you play with like the person with the money because you could spend, you know, the entire budget on film equipment alone if you mm-hmm. wanted to. And so I, and I think cinematographers tend to be like, you know, better lens, better movie. And so it's constantly this battle of like, yeah, we like if we want to stay up to date with what everyone else is doing, like we need these, we need some new glass on our on Mm -hmm. our camera, right? Which I just that whole dynamic of like asking for gear is very realistic. Yeah, I'm I'm sure that like that's true like all the way to the top. That was a very funny scene, but it struck me as like a very. Um, like behind the scenes kind of view of how the camera people talk to the money people. Mm-hmm. You have a note in here that's similar, I think. Uh, you know, we were talking about like expensive camera gear and how this guy is a professional uh, cameraman okay. and yeah, yeah. how their whole approach to like pornography is like quality like let's make the best possible filmic version of porn right and right. then video starts to creep up in their industry and then it's like all right now anybody it's can... a real tension point of the movie right anybody it's like can set make up porn. Mm-hmm. yeah uh and that starts to like kind of hurt their approach to uh how they make porn and... this was a little bit confusing to me like that tension because it's laid out very clear in the movie. Like uh, the rival porn filmmaker guy comes up to Burt Reynolds and they have a meeting about how this is the future. There were terms like that being thrown around something mm-hmm. about video versus film yeah. that I didn't quite understand. Um, and then later on in the movie when we're like definitely in the dark, you know, this is gone belly up part of the movie where it's shown that Burt Reynolds is trying to do like video porn and it doesn't work out. Right. So you're the film guy. Can you kind of like outline more of that tension? Sure. Well, on a real technical level, like film is just way more expensive to shoot and create and develop. It looks way better. So like shooting on like 35 or 70 millimeter film um, or even 18 millimeter film um, will always look way better than any kind of video. So whenever someone says like tape, get something on tape, they're talking about video, which is kind of like film, but it's very small. It's a different kind of stock. Um, so what comes to mind for me, I don't know the technology very well. The word video seems very elusive to me, but VHS is essentially what I'm thinking of when I yeah, think video. Yeah, that's it. Um, and the whole idea is that it's uh, it's cheaper to make. Uh, it's much more portable. So like VHS cameras were something that you could carry around with you. Whereas a film right, camera right. needed this whole big 
rig and like several people manning it. So video was threatening to film, especially in the pornography space, because it didn't. And like the guy who was talking to Burt Reynolds in his own words, he was like, it doesn't need to look good. Like, right. We just need to make it like people will buy it either way. Uh, and that same debate is going on now with, uh, I would say it, like it's probably present in porn, but also just in regular movie, but regular movies. But instead of video versus film, it's um, this, film versus digital. It could like it could be that like there's film versus digital, um, but there's also just uh, shooting things with these you know massive cinema cameras with these very expensive uh lenses and like all these crew members versus lighting everything yeah yeah, versus similar to stuff that i do which is like uh, kind of a one-man band thing where you have cameras that are like kind of a prosumer level where you can create very professional looking stuff um with very few and inexpensive tools so it's there's blurring of the lines between like professional and, and amateur because of yeah the barrier to entry has largely been taken down with technology. It sounds to me like, um, just as a side note, these seem to me like a very filmmaker kind of niche subject to introduce to the movie. Totally. Like I could tell when they were introducing all these elements that they seemed important to the movie. Um, but it was just something that I could not understand. I think that was probably just something that like, paul thomas anderson was very aware of yeah and then it wanted to put in there as a film geek right it's totally a film geeky thing to talk about yeah uh i saw a great uh ask reddit the other day somebody was like and it goes to this exact same subject it's like why is it that some footage from 50 years ago looks like super sharp hd and some stuff looks like absolute garbage like you're looking at a four inch uh tv crt tv screen playing a old vhs tape Mm -hmm. and it goes exactly to the answer is just this it's like film versus video right a time where new technology was conflicting with established technology where it was basically like cheapness and portability and um what's the word i'm looking for everybody can do it accessibility yeah uh-huh was conflicting with higher quality and more yeah expensive technology and it's the same thing with like f- like cell phone video now right where like anybody can shoot anything with their phone yeah uh, it is the exact same thing that's mm-hmm. so funny yeah which is why i said like this debate is still going on today and it's a multi that my comment was like multi-pronged there because it's it could be all kinds of different things, but it's it's just that it's portability and accessibility versus really yeah established professional quality. It's an interesting tension. It's between, and I'm just going to repeat exactly what you said. But it's between what is objectively better versus what is cheaper and more accessible. Mm-hmm. And it's like you almost can't stop people from doing the cheaper thing. Yeah. Once you introduce the technology. I don't think it's a tension that will ever go away, honestly. Because like bigger and badder technology will always produce 
better quality stuff, the more time that you're given to edit something will yield a, a better, more professional product. But uh-huh. the other side of that is people see value in timeliness and cheapness. And I just don't think that right. those two right. things will never just like come together. Well, you can't ever just be like one side or the other. I mean, there's mm-hmm. always going to have to be some give and take. Right. I reminded of that movie they came out maybe five to ten years ago while we were in college that was like filmed on an iphone it was like a movie that got like tangerine yeah yep yeah who made that was that but that was its whole gimmick it was like shot on an iphone yes it's just what a silly thought like to imagine being on set and replacing all of the people with cameras and lighting equipment and all that with just like a person with a phone it's just such a funny picture yeah well they probably had all the lighting and stuff they just replaced the camera with the phone yeah definitely definitely so overall let's um does this uh, uh, tell me trevor does this movie give you any like more appreciation for the director does it make you want to watch any more of his stuff uh yeah uh i downloaded all of pta's movies after this Um, you did yeah uh so they're all ready to go in my watch list yes yeah i got a massive uh pta boner now Mm -hmm. what about you i recommend i've already seen them all so i guess not but watch the phantom thread that's the one that i was least attracted to in like the last few years because uh-huh. uh and it was just like an oscar movie like i didn't know anything about it other than it had some oscar buzz didn't it win some awards i'm not sure but just anytime a movie's in that space i'm like okay it's just an oscar movie like nothing it totally yeah it like uh doesn't leave a bad taste in my mouth but it makes me uninspired to watch that movie i get that i get that Mm -hmm. what's another good example of an oscar movie that just has no cultural relevance or stay at all a lot of biopics i think yeah so like recently i don't know like theory of everything that's another movie that i had that response to where i had oscar buzz yeah, uh, Eddie Redmayne won like best actor, uh, and I think biopics where uh, you know you have a an actor portraying a real person is oftentimes like when they get best actor buzz, and I think someone put this really well once. It's like the Oscar best actor award is really like the most acting award. <laughs> Meaning that they like are stepped so outside of themselves or are basically just doing like an impression of somebody, you know, and right. And that's easy, more easily like digestible as like acting than something a lot more subtle. Right, right. Or even just acting, you know, not in a being an actor in a movie that you're not like an exceptional actor in, you're not like standout in, but just being an actor in a super good movie. Yeah. Often feels like it's not valued as much. Right. Anyways, 
Phantom Thread, I loved it. Okay. I liked it a lot. It's his first movie that's like doesn't take place in America, I think. Okay. I'm going to cut you off here and I'm going to ask for final thoughts on this movie from you. Final thoughts from me? Yeah. So you hadn't seen Boogie Nights before. So what do you think? I thought it was okay. I love period pieces. I love movies that can take you into a different time period. In particular, you know, like different decades of America. I live in America, mm-hmm. as you all know. So it's nice to kind of get get big nets of the culture from different times. Yep. It was fun. Great soundtrack. I think 70s, 80s are like... Great soundtrack. Yeah. Prime decades to make movies from. I really enjoyed Marky Mark and all the other performances from the movie. Yep. So overall, I'll give this movie, you know, it's going to be a little lower than average, but don't be alarmed. You know, I'm going to give this movie 8.3 big dicks out of 10. (laughs) You're going to say big dicks. And really that's, you know, that's more big dick than you need. Honestly, this movie, like when it comes to our scoring system, it kind of demands that you use that as a unit. Like, it seems almost, like, wrong to not say big dicks. I think you should. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to give... Just because I I like this movie a lot, I'll say that, uh, for all the same reasons that you mentioned, great soundtrack. Uh, In the first half, at least, it makes porn kind of this, like, fun, approachable, just another industry thing. It's, like, another artistic expression, you could say. Uh. So it's it's fun to think about things in that way. I think all the actors are uh, pretty amazing. It's super funny. It's like way funnier than what I thought it would be. Yeah, um, it's super funny. Basically a comedy, I'd say. Um, so yeah, there's not a lot to hate about this movie. I just think it's not as interesting as other PTA movies. Uh, but it doesn't uh, doesn't doesn't make it bad by any stretch. But for it scoring kind of lower on the PTA side, I think I'll give it a little bit of a lower score. Uh, so I'm going to give this movie a 7.9 uh, big dicks out of 10. Big dicks. Yeah, out of 10. Okay. What do we give the master? I don't know. We were like tossing out like high scores early on. So <laughs> <laughs> probably like probably like a nine or something. Thanks for listening this week. Our music is by W. Look him up at underscore W on Instagram. That's underscore the word double and two U's. Editing this week was done by me, Raul Flores. Wherever you're listening, please give us a good rating. Give us a good rating, for God's sake. Connect with us at at Pod on Twitter and Instagram. Thanks again. We'll see you next see week. See you next week. Uh, special thanks to Brady Goodman for hosting stuff always. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Brady. And uh, and special thanks to Justin Wheatley for recommending the movie and also joining us. 